be seated. Please turn in your worship booklet to the center section that has the biblical text there written for you of Ruth chapter 1, or you can turn there in your Bibles. We are in the midst of a brief Advent sermon series called The Portraits of Providence, and I'm looking at the doctrine, the biblical teaching of the providence of God through the lens of various figures in Scripture that we're familiar with, but looking at this doctrine of God's providence, His special hand of guidance over all the people, events, and actions, and things of the world. And we last left off with Joseph, where you remember Joseph said at the end of his life in chapter 50 of Genesis to his brothers who had done such harm to him. He looked back and interpreted by saying that what you intended for evil, God intended for good, for the saving of many lives. Well, that opens up a, a, quite a subject of discussion. And I know it may not seem very Christmassy to talk about this, but this is about the hard providence of God. All of the figures of the scriptures experience the hard providence of God, and every human being does because we live in a fallen world. But sometimes we'll just treat it superficially, and I would like to, as the occasion has it, dig a little deeper. I realize for some it might be the first time you really dug this deep on this topic, and I remember going through this process in my own life, and it's an ongoing lifelong study. It is immediately disruptive to us because we have the way we feel about the way God should do things, and then there's the way the Scripture says God does things. And we know that the Scripture is right. It has the wisdom of God. It is the wisdom of God, but there is our, the reality of our feelings and our experiences and trying to interpret them all. And so it's important for us to dig into this. I also think it's Advent-worthy because, you know, during the holiday season, uh, lots of feelings could be brought up again because of losses that you've experienced, maybe recently or over the years, people that aren't here anymore. And when you're in these gatherings together during the holidays, you remember that. And sometimes it's a difficult time for people. So I hope this will help us be comforted and more uh, understanding of what God's will is and how he works. And he'll shower his grace upon us, I hope. Now, the book of Ruth, this is where we're focusing this morning, chapter one in particular. This is during the time of the judges. You remember that Joshua and Caleb conquered the promised land and then divided it up into 12 pieces, 12 parts, 12 regions under the 12 tribes. And then some time went on. There's no king at this time, no human king. Saul and David come much later. The problem is the Israelites did not follow God's plan to eradicate the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. And so what happened over the years is they would be going all right, spiritually Israel would be, but then something would grow from those people who were still there, some false teaching, and the Israelites would fall up under it and start worshiping other gods. They would start committing idolatry. God would raise up as discipline nations to oppress them until they cried out to God for deliverance, had faith in God again, and he would send a judge to deliver them. You remember Deborah and Gideon, to name a few. Well, Ruth is during that time frame, so it's, it's a bit desolate spiritually at this time. The end of Judges captures really how bad it had gotten during that era. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It doesn't mean there weren't true believers. We meet some of them. But overall, it was a very difficult time between the time of Joshua and the time of David. Here now as I read Ruth 1, as we see this story unflow, unfold and we look at it through the lens of God's providence. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. 
And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. In the name of his wife, Naomi. In the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. She was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Oprah. The other name was Ruth. They lived there about ten years. Both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. She said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more, and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, help us to understand your providence this morning. Give comfort to those who have suffered recent loss, recent hard providence, By the ministry of your Spirit, help us to know you better and to rest in Christ more fully. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
It was only my second year here at Redeemer when a 38-year-old wife and mother of four was diagnosed with aggressive cancer, and she died within a year. It was the first funeral I did here. A few years back, some years now, my pastor from seminary in St. Louis, husband and father of three teens, the exact age I am now at that time, he was jogging at the YMCA, he had a heart attack and died on the track. Not too long ago, just a few years ago now, a longtime friend of Sherry and I, friends that we had back from our days in Wichita 20-some-odd years ago, we met at the church and they had a baby girl when we were there. Just a few years ago, she married another young man from the church. They were married in June, and in August, they were in a car accident and both died. They were both a month shy of their 20th birthday. In early April, my cousin in Buffalo contracted COVID. He was 58 with no apparent comorbidities. If you saw him, you'd think he looked just like me, he just had less hair. He died within two weeks. It was my second to the last doctoral seminar, I believe. And there was a pastor there from Nigeria. He had been sent there by his local villages to learn more at seminary, to come back, to be a blessing to them. When we were in the, sem- in the seminar, he got word that one of the churches that he pastored was attacked by Islamist militants, and 20 members of his church were killed, some from his immediate family. There are examples I could use that you would all know, but I don't because they're still raw to most of us in our own church experience. Maybe even right now, some of you are dealing with things along these lines. All of us have either experienced loss or will experience loss in our lives, inexplicable tragedies that occur, suffering that happens. These events and occurrences are not outside of God's providence. But make no mistake, they are hard providences. And it's important for us to search the scriptures to understand what is the purpose and place for these things as best we can, realizing it's a lifelong endeavor. It's a complex topic that is often not taken up because of its complexity. Well, this is a place where I really think that uh, the background of our, in our tradition helps us a bit. So I'm going to ask you for just a moment to turn in your hymnals to page 851. I don't want to treat this topic superficially. I also realize I have limited time. So please, uh, with me, dig deep on this and look at the statement that has been given to us by spiritual forefathers. Now, these men who penned this, over a hundred of them over several years, came together to try to lay out in succinct form the doctrines of the Bible. They took their cue from the scriptures and tried to explain it. Now, we should always be careful to take whatever we read now that isn't Scripture and analyze it according to Scripture. So that might be the challenge for some of you who are first being introduced to the Westminster Confession when I read it. Uh, Challenge yourself to read it and compare it with Scripture to see if it's right. I believe it's right, and I think it captures it well, and I want you to look at a few statements before we go to the passage about providence. I've already introduced you to some, like section 1. God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence. There's that word and that concept. According to his infallible foreknowledge, in the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise 
of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy? It's a complex answer, but you can get the gist of what is being said. Now look at section two. Starts to unpack a bit some of how this works. Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly. Yet, by the same providence, he ordereth them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. You see that the people penning this wanted to bring out the dynamics of the way the scripture describes God's involvedness in how he interacts with creation, but you could see his sovereignty over it. Yes, it's difficult to completely grasp, but you can see as you read the Bible, this is the God that's described, this sovereign one. Look at the third section. God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means. This the way things normally just flow out and work, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. Now, four is the section that really speaks to this issue of hard providence and helps us to try to understand it better. The almighty power and searchable wisdom and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that it extended itself even to the first fall in all other sins of angels and men. And that not by a bare permission, but such as hath joined with it a most wise and powerful bounding, and otherwise ordering and governing of them in a manifold dispensation to his own, here's a key, to his own holy ends. Please notice what it says very closely. To his own holy ends. This is an important description of the reasoning for God's doing these things. Yet so, as the sinfulness thereof proceedeth only from the creature and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. One of the most packed statements in the whole of the confession of faith. But recognize at this moment that important statement to his own holy ends. These holy ends are not always understandable or clear to us. This is important. Uh, We know things come together for his good, but we don't always know how to put it together, and especially not in the short life. Remember this. You will exist, you will live for trillions and trillions and trillions more years. We are just in a small portion of it. I know it's what we know. It's what we're focused on, but it's his holy ends that all these things work together. And eventually, we'll see that, and they'll be for our good. Not always, though, in this short span of our lives. Of course, I think it's encouraging, section 7. As the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures, so after a most special manner it taketh care of his church and disposeth all things to the good thereof. Doesn't mean the happiness now thereof, but to the ultimate good thereof. Now, let's go back to the passage, Ruth chapter 1, and I want us to see first the introduction of this reality of human suffering and its place in God's providence. We're introduced to the fact of the occurrence of famine and death right away in verse 1. Look at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, let's not go any further for a moment. Not many of us have had the experience of a famine. I've fasted a few times, but as you can tell, I have not missed that many meals. And so famine to me, it's really a concept more than a reality. But it's a concept or it's a reality for many people the world over, even today, but especially in antiquity. And it was a grueling reality. It was one of great suffering. Imagine for a moment not having anything to eat nor to be able to provide your loved ones, your children with food to eat to stay alive. Imagine that kind of turmoil, that kind of strain and stress and suffering. 
And it just says it very briefly, but there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah, an Israelite who lived in Bethlehem, that would be on the west side of the Dead Sea. There he lived with his family. He decided he had to go somewhere else to find food because they were suffering. They would die if they stayed there without food. What struggle and strain and difficulty this is. So he decides, it says in the text, to sojourn to the country of Moab. Now Moab, the Moabites, lived west of the Dead Sea. It wasn't that far. They really weren't supposed to be there, but they had occupied the land. And they were Israel's enemies primarily. But this man was so desperate, the humiliation did not bother him. He had to go where there was food. At least this is the way he believed his situation was. So he takes them, he and his wife and his two sons. So much difficulty and strain and struggling and suffering wrapped up already in verse 1 for this man, his wife, and his two children. Here he goes to Moab to survive. It says in verse 2, the name of the man was Elimelech, which means God is my king, or my God is king. And the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem. Do you recognize that? Bethlehem Ephratah. These were Israelites, and they lived in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. They went there to live. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. Uh, that's a swift statement. But if you've had anyone die in your life close, that just defines the rest of your existence in some way. It certainly shapes it. It's an event that is so profound that it's never, you never quite really actually get over it. You may forget as time goes on some of the initial pains, but it's always there. And it just says in one quick statement, the husband of Naomi died. So here's this woman, probably barely in her mid-30s, and her husband dies. And she was left with her two sons, it says in verse 3. How did he die? Do you wonder this? How could this happen? Did the famine take its toll on him too hard already? Did he die of some disease? Did he die? Was he murdered? It could have been any of these things, because that's the reality of this life. And this tragedy and this hardship gets worse for this family. Verse 4. Now speaking of the two sons that were left. These took Moabite wives. They married local women. The name of one was Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. So probably from the age of 20-ish to the age of 30, they were living there. You could expect that by the end of those 10 years or so, Naomi was probably 45, 48 at most. And they were living in that place, Naomi with her two sons and her daughters-in-law. Then verse 5, then verse 5, and both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman, now it's turning to Naomi as a focus, was left without her two sons and her husband. And she's in Moab. How did two sons in their late 20s, maybe 30, die? More famine, more disease? Were they murdered? Was it an accident? Yes, it could have been any of these things because that's the reality of life. It just is so tragic, so young, in such a difficult situation they find themselves in. The wives had to be devastated with the loss of their husbands. And now Naomi, at the lowest point of her life, her husband and two sons gone, and she's in Moab. Famine, death, now the breach of relationships are starting to, be, starting to crop up. Now, 
let's pause for a moment because here we are confronted with the reality of human suffering in God's providence. I could have stopped in Abraham's life and Joseph's life and really focused on this because hard providence, as we call it, is in all of their lives. We usually jump ahead to see the point, the purpose, because we get to see them. And the Bible fills that in for us. But the Bible doesn't fill it in is to say that every one of us will get exact clarity on the issues and the tragedies and the losses that we experience. It's just to say that God's in control of all these things and that you only live a little bit and you will have understanding and it awaits, but we might not have it now and this helps us bear up under this reality that it is God who's in control. And I want us to think about that, God who is in control because most Christians will say, yes, God is in control. But let's ask the question when we're confronted with the reality of human suffering as it relates to God's providence. Why do such things happen? Is God in control? What does that even mean? Is there a purpose for such things as famine and death and disease? Well, there are only really a few possibilities when trying to make sense of human suffering. There may be more complex answers, but making it very simple, I think these categories work. First, this might be the explanation. There is no God, some would say. There is ultimately no meaning to this life or the events that transpire. They're all arbitrary. They just happen. There's another view. There is a God, but he's indifferent to the sufferings of mankind in the world. Disconnected from what is happening in the world. Doesn't care. There's another view. There is a God, but he's partially involved. God doesn't will bad things to happen. Instead, he responds when they happen and he reacts to man and to creation. He could stop bad things and many times he does, but he doesn't always choose to do so, not on every occasion. In fact, that's the answer that probably feels the most natural if you didn't open up the scriptures and really study and see some of the examples and some of the things that are said. It just feels right that God lets things happen, right? Like something's coming along and he stops at this time but he does it another and he's wise enough to know why he should. And things happen a little bit out of his purview but, but he's in control in that sense. Lots of people talk that way practically. There is another view. There is a God and he is completely sovereign. He is totally proactive instead of reactive. All people, events, and things serve his holy purpose, even human suffering and death. Now we could say that the first option here, the first answer is false. God has revealed himself through creation. It's not irrational to know there is a God just by looking at creation. Something created. A creator had to create creation. We also know by special revelation that he has sent his son and made himself known. He has intervened. We can tell also the number two is wrong by the testimony of this special revelation. The fact that God sent Christ In the many instances of supernatural intervention recorded in the scriptures, these testify that God is interested in what's happening. He's not indifferent. Christ coming to earth in the form of a man is the most vivid evidence of God's personal care and involvement for the world that he created. So the only real options for Christians are the last two. There is a God, but he's only partially involved, doesn't will bad things to happen or evil things to happen as we we, uh, categorize them. He responds and reacts. He could stop bad things, does often, but doesn't always choose to do so. Then there is the other option. There is a God. He is completely sovereign. He is totally proactive instead of reactive. All people, events, and things serve his holy purposes, even human suffering and death. Well, we go to the scriptures and start to notice a recurring theme. I'm not talking about in a few select verses. I'm talking a recurring theme. And the theme goes like this. Paul expresses it in Ephesians 1. 
In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Paul writes in Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. So through these passages and others, we can see that God ordains what comes to pass. And he does so with purpose that's known to him very clearly. It's ultimately for the magnification of his glory. Seemingly random events, down to famine in Israel and the death of Elimelech and Malon and Kilion, are determined by God. They're not by chance. God determines the outcome from the very beginning of all things according to his holy purposes. His holy purposes. Even the creation of the wicked and events of calamity are of the Lord. Isaiah says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. In Romans chapter 9, the apostle writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? You see, brothers and sisters, and I say this with all compassion because it's a challenging doctrine. It really is. But the Bible's not sketchy on the subject. He, it's very clear on his sovereignty and his providence. It doesn't say he's a little sovereign. What the Bible teaches is hard for us to comprehend, but it's not unclear. Paul captures this truth once again in Romans 11. He says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. So it is, it has to be that there is a God and he is completely sovereign. He is totally proactive instead of reactive. All people's events and things serve his holy purpose, even human suffering and death. I know well-meaning brothers and sisters in Christ will object at this point. They'll say, you mean to tell me that God predestines human suffering, death? Not my God, they'll say. Pause and think about this for a moment. Think of the alternative. On the one hand, either God is completely sovereign and ordains such things for his purposes, albeit we don't know what they are necessarily in this short life at times. Even when we can't understand it, he does ordain them. Or he stands by as things happen, either out of his control or how much are they in his control. He chooses not to stop or change bad things that happen. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. He either can't stop them or he doesn't stop them or he could and he doesn't. The Bible displays an absolutely sovereign God. In Ecclesiastes, the writer says, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. God has appointed times and seasons for all of us. For some of us, much of our time on earth might be spent with suffering. And all this pain has an eternal purpose. We will live for trillions and trillions and trillions of years, and yes, we lack perspective now. But for the vast majority of our existence, things won't be so confusing. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 135, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Now, back to the story of Naomi and Ruth. The decision is made to return to Israel because the famine was apparently now subsided in Israel. There's food there. Both daughters initially entreat Naomi to let, to, to let her allow them to come along with them. She begs them not to come. In a very telling line in verse 13, 
we read, No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Let's consider something else now in the passage. Let's consider the understandable bitterness of Naomi. Here we have the challenge now of interpreting God's providence personally. We could all say amen to much of what I said. Unless you're in real hardship right now, it's, it's, it's bitter to hear because of the feeling of bitterness. Not talking about bitterness or anger towards God, but bitterness with the reality of suffering in this fallen life. But we could say amen to this general doctrine, but applying it personally is where it becomes very challenging. And I believe Naomi provides some help for us. It's one thing to say God is sovereign kind of as a mantra for everything when bad things happen especially. But that in itself will not bring you comfort. You must plumb the depths of what that means. All indications about Naomi is that she believes in the God of Israel. Nowhere does she disavow God or say that God cannot do whatever he wills. In her life, in her experience, we see the challenge of interpreting God's providence personally. She had an orthodox understanding of God. But for her, in her life, in her experience, she had a bitter taste. And we can all say that makes sense. Of course she did. Terrible tragedy that she endured. The daughters insist on going with Naomi back to Israel to seek help and refuge. Now I want you to examine with me a bit of what Naomi says, and this reveals her theology, what she really believes about God. By the way, that's when you know what you really believe about God, when it comes upon you, when the trials are there. This is why it's good to talk about this now, because when, not if, when these things happen to us, we'll have a, a foundation of understanding and, and know a little more about where our Lord comes from in our lives. Notice what it says in verse 13. Would you therefore wait till they were grown? She's just saying, this is a crazy idea for you to come with me. I'm not going to have more sons that you can marry. Why would you come with me? It's exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She understands completely who's guiding and directing the events of her life. She has no doubt that God is in control of whatsoever comes to pass. And she's saying to these women, go on your own. Don't come with me. Verse 19, skip down to verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. Now it's just Naomi and Ruth. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. You know what's happening. Here comes Naomi, 10 years after she had left married with two children. Now she comes back widowed with this Moabitess. And people knew. They talked. There was whispers. It's before Facebook, but they still knew what was going on in everybody's life. And they whisper. And here it is. And the woman said, is this Naomi? And she knew they were whispering. Just more added pain. She said, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. So the bitterness we're talking about is a sense she has about her lot that has been given to her by the Lord. Verse 21, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? I want to ask you something. What do you make of Naomi's theology, brothers and sisters? What do you make of it? I'll tell you what, I would take Naomi's theology any day over the sentimentalism that occupies so much of modern Christianity. I know it's easy to pick on, but just take it in the big picture, the prosperity gospel idea of people like Copeland and Hinn and Jakes and Paula White, Austin, go on the list. 
These have no basis in Scripture. They have no connection to reality in God's world. There's a prosperity preacher who put out a book not too many years ago, Jesus Heals Your Sickness Today. And I found someone who was in a difficult case of sickness who did not come from a prosperity gospel angle had been given that book and they were thinking some of what it must have been is true. And their sickness must have meant God was not happy with them. And in this book it said, on the title, title under the title, while the world is suffering unknown illness and epidemics, this book brings to life the ministry of Jesus. If you or a loved one needed healing, needs healing, here is the perfect tool you need to attain it. That person saw their loved one die while seeing that book. In Joel Osteen's church website, it says, to be successful in your walk with God, commit to honor God with your finances. When you commit to give the Lord the first 10% of your income, God promises, promises he will pour out blessings that you cannot contain. Tithing is the first step, he says, to financial prosperity. He writes in his book that was so popular, wildly popular, if you don't think that you can have something good, then you will never will. The barrier is your mind, he says. The pastor goes on. Your own wrong thinking can keep you from God's best. Now, I'm not saying you're all prosperity thinkers, but I think we tend to think that way sometimes when things don't go right. What did I do wrong? Something's, I'm not thinking positively enough. I've got a negative attitude. He goes on, to experience God's immeasurable favor, you must rid yourself of that small-minded thinking and start expecting God's blessings. Start anticipating promotion and supernatural increase, he says. Well, I wonder, would Austin go into the jail of that North Korean Christian who's withering away and starving and hand him that book? Do you think he would go to the Chinese pastor, Pastor Wang Yi, who is now languishing in a Chinese prison somewhere, saying, you know, your small-mindedness has you in this prison. Do you think he would go to the villages of Nigeria where Christians are being slaughtered and say, if you would just stop thinking negatively, your life would be blessed. No, the theology of Naomi is just fine, thank you. It's not fully matured yet, but it's just fine. She's unshaken about three things. God exists, he is sovereign, and he has afflicted her. Naomi does not deny God. Naomi does not say God was unfair. Naomi does not curse God. Naomi doesn't tell anyone else to stop believing in God. She just states what's true. I'll take the theology of Naomi any day. There is laden in the first chapter of Ruth the seeds of something else that starts to develop where we gain a slight glimpse of God's providential purpose in this case. Notice in verses 6 down to verse 18 the response of Ruth to everything she has seen happen to Naomi and has happened to her. I'm going to call this the conversion of Ruth. I don't mean this in a technical sense of conversion, but I think you'll follow what I'm saying. You'll see the place of God's redemption in God's providence. Verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Now, Naomi recognizes the hand of God is now upon her homeland, and she goes there. So she's got this spiritual sensitivity that has been clearly on display, certainly to Ruth, over these ten years of Ruth knowing her. But Naomi, verse 8, tries to talk the daughters-in-law, as you know, out of coming with her. And she says something interesting. I don't know if she doesn't know the full depth of what her daughters-in-law think. They'd never talked about it before. She was living her life, no doubt. She says, return, each of you, to, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. She's giving a blessing of God to them. Notice that's further evidence of Naomi's depth of belief. 
The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And she kissed them. She loves them. This is difficult, the relationship breach that's happening. And they say, no, we'll return with you. But Naomi says, turn back. Why will you go with me? I don't have sons that you can remarry. And then it says, would you therefore wait till they're grown? No. It's exceedingly bitter for your sake. The Lord has gone out against me. Go back to your gods, she says. This is a key moment. Go back to your gods in your country. She's assuming at this point, coming from Moab, she doesn't, they do not believe in the God of Israel. But I think she underestimates what they picked up from her over their time. Verse 14, then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. She tries to say to Ruth, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people, to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Here's a moment where Ruth can state what she believes. This is a statement of faith coming now from Ruth. But Ruth said, verse 16, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and where... And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also of anything, but death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. I would imagine 10 years of knowing Naomi. We know a bit about Naomi and her bluntness, her honesty, her accuracy, that Ruth has watched this over the course of her life, at least the last 10 years. I'm sure she had known of the story of Genesis, the promise of a Messiah, the story of Noah, the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She knew the story of Moses. She knew the story of the Exodus and the receiving of the law, no doubt. She knew the story of Joshua for sure and the conquest, which was just not more than a century before. She knew that God had called a covenant people. She knew that God promised to provide ultimate redemption for them. When Ruth says, your people shall be my people and your God my God, it's akin to saying that Jesus Christ is Lord. She had been converted in a sense of the word through famine, death, broken relationships, seeing Naomi, God had shown something of himself to her and she wanted to be identified with him and his people. God is always working his plan of redemption, even in difficult, tragic circumstances. Circumstances never prohibit this reality. Instead, human suffering and death provide the backdrop, the black backdrop that shows forth his glorious grace all the more. For where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. On the human level, the lives of Naomi and Ruth were just full of tragedy. But their suffering was part of God's holy purpose. And such is true for believers. Paul writes, we do not lose heart. Though our outward nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In the case of Naomi and Ruth, we get a glimpse of God's purposes as the book unfolds. We don't always get that personally. I, I make mention of that to you again. But the book unfolds beautifully. It's a wonderful love story, a love story between a man and a woman, between God and his people. There is this concept called the kinsman redeemer. This is where a male relative, and this is according to various laws in the Pentateuch, had the privilege or responsibility to act on behalf of a relative who had died. So if a man's cousin or brother dies, leaving a widow, and he has no children to keep the family name going or to provide for them, he can marry them. And thus, it, he can redeem them out of that situation, a kinsman redeemer. 
Well, as the story unfolds, as you may be aware, and it's well worth your reading, there's only three more chapters in the book. Through providential circumstances, Boaz, a relative of Naomi, meets Ruth. Naomi guides Ruth to appeal to Boaz to be her kinsman redeemer. In a beautiful love story, Boaz marries Ruth and they have a son together and carry on the family line. And then Naomi becomes a happy grandmother who acts as a regular caretaker of her grandson. Now I want to pause. I'm not saying now that she's a happy grandmother, her life's all happy now. It's like those tragedies don't go away. Those scars are still real. But it shows you a bit of God's mercy to bring something back into her life that reminds her of his watch care and his love for her. The hymn writer, William Cooper, who was on the verge of suicide, tried to commit suicide, but the cab driver who was taking him around to the place he wanted to die knew he was trying to do this, so he purposely got lost and then eventually tired him out and dropped him back off at his house. That's a true story. But Cooper continually dealt with this depression. And he wrote this hymn, Our God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And a few of the lyrics, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. In the most powerful line I think of the hymn, blind unbelief is sure to err. Don't trust the way you feel about it. And scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. By the way, the Christmas tie. Ruth's baby boy, fathered by Boaz, was Obed. Obed grew up, and he had a son. His son's name was Jesse. Jesse grew up, and he had a son. And his name was David, King David. In the Gospel of Matthew, it opens, keeping in mind this is 1,100 years later, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In Matthew 1, 20 20 and 21, where the angel is letting Joseph understand what's happening with his wife Mary, who's now pregnant. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, I don't know how much emotional healing Naomi and Ruth experienced in their life on earth. Indeed, their scars were deep and lasting. But I'm quite certain that God's holy purposes are now plain and blessed to them. Let's pray. Lord God, you indeed move in a mysterious way as a result of our consideration of the teaching.